Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Reaction to the latest COVID-19 modeling for Ontario, including from Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health. It appears many Canadians support reform options for healthcare, including private clinics to reduce wait times. Screening pop-ups to address hepatitis C infections are planned in Hamilton this Friday. And today's Grey Cup legend is CFL rushing champ Mike Pringle. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As we enter the holiday season, I'm encouraging all Ontarians to avoid large crowds, practice physical distancing, wear your mask and wear it properly, wash your hands frequently, stay home when you're sick, and get vaccinated. That is Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, yesterday reflecting on new modeling numbers, pausing plans to lift capacity limits in remaining high-risk settings in the province of Ontario as we continue to battle the COVID-19 virus, the Omicron virus that has, or variants that has uh, jumped onto the scene and has caused uh, some concern among, uh, well, everyone really, not just uh, public health officials, but you and I and uh, everyone else involved in uh, the day-to-day struggle that COVID-19 has provided. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson is our next guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Richardson is the Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton and joins us now. Dr. Richardson, good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us once again. We um, consumed the latest numbers from the Ontario Science Advisory Table yesterday, projecting upwards of 3,000 cases a day by mid-January hospitalizations, perhaps close to 400 in the ICU. Um, your reaction to that, do you get a sense that we could hit those numbers uh, in this province? Yeah, I think that it's the projections that we've seen from the science table are very consistent with the work that we're doing with our uh, our healthcare partners here in Hamilton looking at projections and you may have seen those at the Board of Health on Monday and we are uh, projecting here as well to see an increase in cases and an increase in hospitalizations as we go forward through the fall or sorry through the winter with people you know being indoors with the the kinds of activities that we're expecting to happen over the coming weeks and months and that's where You'll hear us continue to say, as you heard from Dr. Kieran Moore in your clip that you did just now, about the importance of both vaccination and very pleased to see both vaccination of 5 and 11 year, 5 to 11 year olds coming up nicely with almost 20% vaccinated already. But also the importance of continuing to follow public health measures, the masking, the physical distancing. And, you know, we have two, you know, really big things coming up in our future, a gray cup and hopefully some uh, Ticat victory celebrations as well as our uh, our holiday season. And so we're really um, hoping that people will continue to practice those measures right through those celebrations, you know, maintaining masks um, as much as you can when you're in those settings, maintaining distancing from others um, that aren't part of your usual, uh, your usual contacts. And, of course, staying home if you're sick and, and participating safely from home. With any large gathering, there is a fear that it could become a super spreader event. To get into the Grey Cup, at least into Tim Hortons Field, you do have to have both doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Is that a bit of a sigh of relief that we could avoid a super spreader event? It is. It's certainly one of the really important interventions that are out there to make sure that people who are gathering in these sorts of ways are fully vaccinated. And so very glad to see that proof of vaccination piece continue to be held. And as you heard from Dr. Moore, no decisions yet about when that might be lifted. But for this kind of event, it does give me a sigh of relief. I'm sure it gives many of your listeners a sigh of relief 
to know if they're participating, those around them are vaccinated. But even still, we do know that breakthrough cases can occur. And so that's why we need both of those things. We need vaccinations and we need to continue to follow public health measures, even when we're in those crowds that are fully vaccinated. Should be noted as well, there's a lot of, you know, Grey Cup events that are planned today, festivals, parties. So, yeah, anyone who's attending those things uh, should be wary of, you know, some of the risks when they're unmasked or not practicing that uh, that uh, hand hygiene. Um the fourth wave, is it still with us? Or are we in wave number five? Well, I think that's what everybody is trying to do is our, our epidemiologists looking at, at what the trends are, what's been happening. And, and again, I think our provincial uh, counterparts have it right. That it's essentially, we're in an extension of the fourth wave. We never really came down um, right to you know, low levels uh, between the, the fourth wave as we've seen it so far and where we are now. And so this is really a continuation, I think, of that fourth wave. Regardless, I mean, the concern is what happens next. And all of that is something that we can certainly have some influence over by continuing to make sure we get those vaccination rates up. You know, as I said, very much looking forward to having the 5 to 11 group vaccinated. And uh, and the quicker we're able to do that, the better. But as well, continuing to be very thoughtful as we're going through this holiday season. I mean, all of us are hoping for something where we can do a few more of those things that we'd like to do in our life. But doing them safely continues to be very important. So mindful of our number of contacts, being very wise in the events we choose to, to take part in and continuing to follow those, uh, those public health measures. And of course, if you're sick, please stay home. Um, we do know there's other viruses circulating. And so um, please go out and get tested, see what it is that you may have and, uh, and continue to, to go through this season well, but safely. Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned the children's vaccination rate. Is that number what you expected at this point? Were you thinking it could be a little bit higher or perhaps wondering if it was going to be a little bit lower than what we have? Yeah, I'm really pleased with our vaccination rate amongst children. In 10, in, you know, 10 or so days, we've managed to get 20% of that group vaccinated. Over 8,100 kids have come forward and uh, are booking in, especially because we do ask them to book in um, because of the, we want to make sure that they're looked after in ways that suit children. And so they've been great about booking into the uh, various sorts of sites where those vaccines can be done. Um, and of course, we're welcoming anybody who is in their family who may not have been vaccinated yet to come on in with them. We can certainly handle any other walk-ins that come along with them from the family, um, but just asking that those 5 to 11-year-olds be booked in. So we're very much hoping that that rate's going to continue to climb at a good pace. We're going to hear another recommendation later on today from Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table, this surrounding rapid testing. Uh, there could be uh, maybe a suggestion that it should be offered uh, more so in schools and workplaces, other congregate settings. Is, is there a need out there for more rapid testing? We're really interested to see what the science table um, comes forward with. You know, they've been a great advisory group, very good to have their independent voice out there um, looking at the data and telling us what we can use. We're very happy with the the assessment centres. Our assessment centres have a good um, capacity for testing, and that's really important for anybody who's symptomatic. But the testing in those who don't have any symptoms, and that's where the rapid antigen tests come in, that's been a piece where we're, we've been trying all through this to figure out where they fit best. And so very much looking forward to the advice that the science table brings out today. Dr. Richardson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. 
Thank you. You too. Bye for now. That is Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, offering her insight into the latest modeling numbers from the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table and some of the uh, restrictions that will at least be uh, upheld or tightened in places like the Windsor area that is seeing a bit of a spike in cases down there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We must remain cautious in the face of the virus. This pause will allow us to continue monitoring trends in public health and healthcare indicators while also learning more about the Omicron variant. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health yesterday, uh, announcing that uh, some plans will be paused in terms of lifting capacity limits on some remaining high-risk settings, um, like strip clubs and and, and the like. Uh, Ontario's new COVID-19 modeling also shows that Cases, daily, that daily case count, those hospital admissions are going to rise regardless of what happens with the Omicron variant. So these stats, these modeling numbers were put in place uh, without Omicron, uh, obviously top of mind, but without Omicron included in in terms of its impact. Todd Coleman is uh, an emerging scientist in HIV population health at Wilfrid Laurier University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Good, thank you. Was there any surprise at the numbers that we saw yesterday? Did anything shock you? It didn't shock me. Uh, You could tell from the trajectory that we were on for the last several weeks that we were expecting a rise. So nothing too shocking in terms of the numbers, no. 3,000 daily cases by the end of December is what the uh, new modeling shows us. Uh, And it doesn't include the Omicron uh, variant, uh, could we see a much higher case count due to Omicron, or is it just a wait and see because we don't have all the information yet? Yeah, it's a little of both. So it is primarily a wait and see. We do we do see from the data that is emerging that it does seem to transmit much more efficiently. Uh, than the previous variants, unfortunately. We're also expecting, uh, I guess, another surge uh, of admissions in hospitals, not just in terms of those admissions, but uh, ICU admissions, which obviously, uh, you know, people in that uh, scenario are much worse off with their health. Um, Are we ready? Are hospitals ready for yet another surge because they've been battered and bruised over the last, well, almost two years now? Um, I, I would say they're ready. Um, uh, not eager, I would say. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the healthcare sector has been quite, like you said, uh, weathered and battered by uh, previous waves, and I'm sure this isn't what they're looking forward to. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Todd Coleman. He's with the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, an emerging scientist in the HIV population health at Wilfrid Laurier University. The impact of the kids' vaccine seems to be a little minimal when we see these uh, modeling numbers. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It's due to the fact that there isn't a large cluster of, of children who are vaccinated at this point. The uptake isn't high enough, uh, and we've seen, we've heard from public health officials that they keep urging uh, uh, those that are between 5 and, and 12 to get vaccinated. The uptake isn't quite there yet to buffer any transmissions that might be happening. 
Uh, the uh, government, or at least Dr. Kieran Moore, announcing a pause on um, the, I guess, uh, relaxation of some um, COVID-19 restrictions uh, in terms of capacity limits. Uh, places like the Windsor Health Unit are looking at their scenario with a, a, a sharp spike in cases and implementing uh, restrictions once again. Do we see some of those restrictions returning in Ontario? What does your gut tell you? My gut tells me that we likely should be doing something in, in certain regions like Windsor. Um, the, the hesitancy to, to do a, a province-wide lockdown is clearly apparent at this point. Uh, so I'm not really seeing that happening uh, anytime soon. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll wait and see on that. I'm sure a lot of businesses are a little nervous at uh, what is happening, at least in Windsor and some other parts of the province. Todd, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us this morning and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. That's Todd Coleman, OHTN Emerging Scientist in HIV Population Health at Wilfrid Laurier University. And uh, later on today, Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table will release some new recommendations on rapid testing as uh, the province faces growing calls to make these tests more widely available. So we'll hear from uh, Dr. Peter Uni and the gang about um, what makes sense from a scientific perspective. And will we see more rapid testing in places like schools, uh, in our workplaces, other congregate settings, whether it's restaurants or convention centers or whatnot? Uh, We'll get those details later on today from the Ontario uh, COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I want to focus on an interesting study that is going to be conducted with three First Nations communities as they investigate vaccine hesitancy, the immune response to COVID-19 vaccine, as well as health outcomes after those individuals are vaccinated in those communities. And here to share some insight into all of this is Dr. Sonia Anand, principal investigator of the COVID Community First Nations Study. Good morning, Dr. Anand. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Good morning, Rick. Why is a study like this needed? Uh, For a few reasons. Uh, First and foremost, uh, First Nations individuals have a higher uh, risk of COVID-19. It's about two to four times higher at the present time. Second is in some communities, there is um, mistrust of vaccinations given uh, some historical um, challenges that the First Nations people have faced. And third is uh, we want to engage communities and try and address as many of the questions that they may have. So kind of getting the latest information to First Nations communities, having a conversation about it, may in itself increase interest in vaccination. Will this study help find out why Indigenous populations are two to four times higher at risk? Uh, Not directly. I think that most uh, people will recognize that individuals who um, have a lot of uh, social and economic challenges, so we often refer to this as the social determinants of health, um, as well as living conditions for families, living in multi-generational households and essential work are probably the primary drivers for certain communities to have a higher risk of infection. The reasons uh, similar communities may have a higher morbidity or hospitalization once infected uh, is also often due to the social factors associated with health as well as access to health care. But what this study will 
uh, tell us is really the interest, the response to vaccines, and by response, I mean the immune response, so we can measure antibody responses uh, to vaccination. And sometimes that varies uh, from community to community and amongst individuals who may have other risk factors like diabetes or other chronic diseases. So all in all, we'll learn quite a lot from uh, this study within First Nations communities, and I believe it will help engage First Nations communities in research and build trust as we do that. Three First Nations communities will be involved in this study. Six Nations of the Grand River, Lac Lorange Indian Band in Saskatchewan, as well as Wendake in Quebec. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was the stress surrounding the vaccine, the vaccine hesitancy. I- is there a theory uh, as to why this hesitancy is in the Indigenous population? Sure. I think that um, really history will uh, inform us greatly here. Um, you may be aware that in the early 1900s, um, vaccinations were tested in Indigenous communities and people to see if there were side effects uh, prior to them being rolled out into other communities. So there's certainly a mistrust of vaccination programs amongst uh, many First Nations communities due to the, the kind of colonial history and oppression that First Nations people have experienced. So I think that's a large component of it. Uh, the second is, although Indigenous peoples are prioritized for vaccinations, um, many people don't want to be the first community to receive them as well and would like to have more experience in Canada with how people respond to vaccines before they, they you know, roll up their sleeve. So I think there are a couple of reasons uh, that communities may be hesitant around vaccination. However, within the three communities we are working, uh, there are some uh, very high rates of vaccinations in certain communities and lower in others. So we're trying to understand what are the causes of that variable uh, trust and confidence in vaccination. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Sonia Anand, Principal Investigator of the COVID Community First Nations Study, also a professor of medicine at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine and a senior scientist at the Population Health Research Institute at McMaster and Hamilton Health Sciences. We're chatting about a new study that is investigating the immune response and vaccine hesitancy among First Nations communities. How long is this study scheduled to run and more importantly, when will the data be released? Yes, uh, so we got funded for this study in uh, April of this year. It takes a while to get our research ethics approvals, etc., but we're well underway. In fact, Six Nations of the Grand River is leading the charge with almost 400 people enrolled. Our goal is to, across the three communities, recruit uh, over 2,000 participants. So we're recruiting as quickly as we can, and we hope we'll have some Uh, robust results by uh, the spring, so one year from the time we initiate the study. And then the final follow-ups will take a year after that. At the end of the day, how will this study improve uh, what is happening with First Nations populations in regards to the pandemic? What are some of the big takeaways you hope to see? Uh, Big takeaways include uh, reassuring the community that the the immune response to vaccination is robust. Uh, Also, uh, having the conversation about uh, reasons for vaccine hesitancy among some participants. Uh, Also, um, reassuring 
participants and the communities at large uh, with respect to the effectiveness and safety of COVID-19 vaccinations. And I think all of those will help us get through this pandemic, which, as you mentioned, is perhaps going into a fifth wave. But also many of the things we learn will help communities prepare for the next pandemic or future epidemics of infectious diseases. Dr. Nan, thanks for your time today. Good luck with the study, and we will certainly touch base when some of the data is released. Sounds great, Rick. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Sonia Anan, Principal Investigator of the COVID Community First Nations Study. Excited to hear what they find in their research. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new poll commissioned by SecondStreet.org shows a large majority of Canadians support reform options for health care, and that includes private clinics to reduce wait times. Our guest is the president of Second Street, Colin Craig, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, let's jump right in because there's some uh, interesting highlights from this survey, including 67% of Canadians who support provincial governments hiring private clinics to provide health services to reduce wait lists. That, that seems to be a pretty high number. It, it certainly does, yes. And it's, uh, I think it's good news for provincial governments that are actually doing this. And, and many were actually doing this prior to uh, the pandemic as well. But, uh, you know, obviously, uh, after the pandemic hit, governments right across the country postponed hundreds of thousands of surgeries and diagnostic scans and procedures. So they created this huge backlog. And then a lot of them have said, OK, well, the way we're going to deal with it is we're going to hire some clinics and pay them to provide procedures to patients. And so Ontario is doing that, Alberta, BC, lots of different provinces are doing this. And, uh, you know, some people have criticized it and they said, no, you shouldn't be doing this. You should, it should all be government run. And uh, lo and behold, the public seems to support what uh, governments are, are doing with, this, with, this, with respect to this. Are there provincial or regional differences here? I, I think there there seems to be some provinces that are doing this a little bit more than others. Um, and some of that has to do with the, the capacity that's there. Canada has a very limited uh, private sector component when it comes to healthcare services for these types of activities, surgeries, and, and those types of things. Of course, when you go to your family doctor, pretty much right across the country, that's a, that's really a private business that governments will fund based on the number of times that uh, patients actually use that service. So there is private health care already in Canada, uh, but uh, with respect to this, it does seem to differ a little bit province by province. Among those uh, 67% of uh, respondents who uh, support provincial governments hiring private clinics to provide uh, health services to reduce those waiting lists, is that support generally from the older population or the younger uh, portion of those who responded? You know, that, that's a good question. I'll have to take a look at the numbers as we're, we're chatting here. But um, it, uh, one of the things we did notice was that the majority occurred right across the country. Hmm. Um, it, it was something that it didn't matter which part of the country you're in. The majority of Canadians supported it. And uh, just looking here at the data, it was actually supported more so by Canadians who were older, over the age of uh, 55. But, you know, there was support right in the, the lower age brackets as well, 18 to 34, 35 to 54. Strong support there, 64%, 67%. So this is something that uh, it, it doesn't really matter where you live or how old you are. This is something that people, I think patients are really just focused on getting the care they need. They don't care if the person 
is getting a check from the government as a government employee or if they're getting a check that's funded through the government because they're working at a private clinic. They just care that the, the surgery is getting done and they want to make sure that the quality is good. And that's, I think, what most uh, what most patients are concerned about. Nearly 8 in 10 Canadians uh, say that the government or governments should track and disclose this data in terms of people who are on waiting lists who end up dying while they're on this waiting list. That's an interesting uh, amount of people. Yeah, it's it's uh, quite sad, but we've been doing research on this issue for uh, a couple of years now, looking into the sad fact that a number of Canadians do die while they're waiting for surgeries that could either save their lives, potentially, if you're waiting for heart surgery and you wait too long and then you sadly pass away, or cases where patients' quality of life is affected. So sometimes patients will spend a year, two years, three years. We've even seen examples where patients waited eight or nine years surgery and that can affect their quality of life if they're living in pain maybe they have mobility issues because they're not getting their hip surgery in time and so uh, you know we ask this question should governments do a better job of tracking this data because quite often governments just they don't they don't follow it they don't track the information and we think that's a pretty glaring omission and the public is uh, very much in favor of greater uh, tracking of that data and disclosure of it absolutely colin craig will have to leave it there thank you for joining us today and enjoy the rest of your day Thanks a lot, Rick, for the time. If people want to see the poll, they can go through it on our website. Excellent. Colin Craig, president of Second Street. You can find out more information on their website, secondstreet.org. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Like most things, COVID-19 has had a, a, a great impact in the healthcare industry in particular. And I want to focus on an initiative that is coming to Hamilton later on this week. And it's regarding hepatitis C. And there's going to be some pop-up screening clinics that will be held in town uh, throughout the week. Galeed Sciences Canada and Care Haven are looking to uh, increase access to care for at-risk individuals. Annie Greaves is a community outreach manager with Care Haven and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Annie. Good morning, Rick. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing wonderful. Excited to uh, be up in this morning talking to you, be able to uh, to tell everybody in Hamilton about what we have going on. Yeah, so what is going on later on this week? Absolutely. So we've partnered with uh, Gilead Sciences, who have launched a national education screening initiative to basically address the hepatitis C infections uh, that we have going on in the country. So obviously, with uh, everything else that COVID has uh, has impacted, COVID-19 has obviously caused a significant shift in uh, hepatitis C services and really slowed the progress towards elimination. So this is a critical time to be able to re, uh, you know, re-engage all the hepatitis C uh, treaters and all be able to engage the priority populations who uh, who really needs us. So the campaign itself is centering on one key action, which is taking a 15-minute break uh, for yourself. So Gilead's partnering uh, with community partners, uh, like I said, across the country to be able to ask those who are at risk um, contracting hepatitis C to, uh, to take a little break, learn about hepatitis C and get tested and uh, get diagnosed so, uh, so we can link them to treatment. So you mentioned that COVID has caused significant shifts in hepatitis C. What, what shift has happened? So uh, one of the main things that's happened is healthcare just hasn't been as accessible during uh, during COVID-19. You know, I think we've all seen that with many offices having to shut down, many things not being in person. So uh, one of the things that we're able to do now um, 
you know, Care Haven's been lucky enough to be able to keep going throughout uh, COVID-19, but so many people haven't. So uh, so we've seen a lot of people get left to the wayside. You know, very unfortunately, a lot of the people in vulnerable, uh, a lot of people in vulnerable communities not be able to get the access to care that, you know, everybody's struggling with, but specifically these communities. And these communities are the ones that are most at risk uh, for hepatitis. So uh, so we're just going out. Um, we have lots of educational material. We're engaging everybody. Those at increased risk, uh, you know, in general, are really those who, um, who consume drugs, who have lived um, in the experience of incarceration, the First Nation, um, Inuit, Métis people, of course, those who are homeless and uh, vicariously housed. So we're trying to really reach out to those, uh, those communities that have been so affected um, by COVID-19 and haven't been able to, you know, reach out to healthcare providers uh, in a time where it's hard for anybody to do so. Uh, so we're really trying to get out there. Um, and, you know, luckily Gilead's partnered with us to be able to do that. We're talking with uh, Annie Greaves, Community Outreach Manager at Care Haven, about some uh, screening pop-ups to address hepatitis C infections in Hamilton. That's going on this Friday. So is there going to be a mobile unit just kind of going around the city? I uh, know. So what we're doing is we're actually going to uh, to very specific locations. So there's actually 30 across the country uh, going on this week. But in Hamilton specifically, we will be at St. Patrick's Church, which is uh, just a wonderful um, you know, ha- has very wonderful um, barbecues for, for people on uh, on their Friday. So we're going to be at St. Patrick's Church at 440 King Street East uh, on Ham- in, uh, in Hamilton on Friday. And, uh, and we'll be doing screening, testing, education. We'll have, uh, you know, we'll have coffee and snacks for people to take that 15-minute break, learn a little bit about uh, hepatitis C, you know, what makes you so open to, to contracting the virus and uh, and get people screened and see if we can link them to any type of care that they might need. Is this an all day thing as well? Um, so we will um, we will be at the church from eleven o'clock until three o'clock. Okay. One of the stats that I heard is that there's like a quarter of a million Canadians who have hepatitis C, and about half don't even know that they have it. Yeah. Are, are, what are the signs yeah, it, and it, symptoms, it, or are there any signs and symptoms? So one of the really scary things um, is that so many people can live years without having any idea that they know hepatitis C, which is why we tell everybody that they just need to get screened for it. There's such a wide range of things that can make you um, make you open to contract hepatitis C. So like I said, people can live years without showing any symptoms of it. And like you said, 50% have no idea that they have it out of a quarter of a million people. So over time, it can lead to serious liver damage, you know, uh, associated with a range of symptomatic health uh, problems and, you know, decreased quality of life. But really, it, it can just lay dormant in your body for years without without any symptoms at all. And so what does hepatitis C do? Uh, to the body itself? Yeah. So really, obviously, it's it's attacking um, it's attacking your liver. So it, it it's a virus within uh, within the body that's att- that's attacking the liver. So um, so that's where we're you know uh, we're telling people that this is going to cause you know health effects going going forward with your body. And so you know again, as I mentioned, there's there's such a range of uh, systemic health problems that it can cause and. And so having no idea that it's even there, being able to catch it before those before those symptoms even show up is such an important thing. Mm-hmm. If someone does uh, have the virus, what kind of treatment is available? 
So um, it's actually come such a long way over the years, which is why, uh, which is why, you know, we tell people a lot of the people that we see are, you know, um, heard about treatment in the past, you know, when, when hepatitis C treatment first came available. And obviously, it was, a, it was a little more complicated back then. Um, but now it's actually a really uh, simple and, uh, and easy treatment once you get um you know, once you're confirmed that you uh, have hepatitis C. So it's an oral medication, um, very easy to use, very minimal side effects. And we can actually cure um, hepatitis C now with these oral medications. And uh, it has a um, a rate of uh, 95% positivity once taken to eliminate hepatitis C in the body. Wow, phenomenal. Annie, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and good luck with the uh, screening pop-up on Friday. Absolutely, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on. And we we hope to see people to take that 15 minute break and get screened. Sounds good. Annie Greaves, Community Outreach Manager at Care Haven. Their uh, screening uh, pop up happens Friday from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. If you're interested in attending, sounds like it'll be 15 minutes out of your day. That will be well worth it. St. Patrick's Church, 440 King Street East here in Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When you think of some of the all-time best players, Mike Pringle should be mentioned. I mean, we all focus on the quarterbacks, whether it's Russ Jackson, Doug Flutie, so probably the top two, I, I would think, when we're thinking about the best all-time CFL players. Uh, George Reed in there. Some might suggest Ron Lancaster's should be in there. Uh, Mike Pringle should definitely, absolutely be in that equation. He's not only a Canadian Football Hall of Famer, but he is the uh, all-time rushing champion and also holds the record for total yards from scrimmage in the Canadian Football League. And if you are a hardcore CFL fan, you will also know that Mike Pringle is tied with the great George Reed, that fabulous running back from the Saskatchewan Roughriders, with 137 career touchdowns. And there is a little bit of a twist to that story because there was an opportunity for Pringle to break that record uh, in the, the twilight of his career. And he was in with Edmonton at the time, and I believe Danny Machocha was the coach. And uh, Edmonton had a chance to score a touchdown. They were near the goal line. And Machocha does not call Pringle's number. How can he not do that? I mean, he's going for the all-time TD record. And so for the rest of time, Mike Pringle and George Reed will be tied for the all-time uh, career touchdown leader list in terms of rushing touchdowns at 100 37. That is, wow, that's a number I don't think that will ever be reached. Another number that I don't think will ever be reached as well is the number 2,065. And that is the number of rushing yards that Mike Pringle ran for in 1998. 2,065. That is uh, insane. This year's rushing champion, now mind you, uh, we had a 14-game season, not an 18-game season, and William Stanback, who was the rushing champ in 2021, played just 12 games, but he ran for 1,176 yards this year. 
That is the rushing champ for this season. 1,176. Pringles' record is 2,065. That is a record that will never, ever be broken. I can't, I can't see anybody doing that. Uh, case in point, back in 2019, Andrew Harris, most outstanding Canadian in the Grey Cup a couple of years ago, he led the league with 1,380 rushing yards. And, you know, the list goes on and on. 2,000 people haven't even gotten close to that. So that's a record that is going to live, I think, forever and ever and ever. And it was not only the amount of yards that Mike Pringle ran for, but it was the way he ran. Everyone in the stadium knew Mike Pringle was going to get the ball, whether he was in his heyday with the Baltimore Stallions, whether it was with the Montreal Alouettes, and that year he was with the Owls in 1988 when he, or 1998 when he cracked the 2K barrier. Everyone knew he was getting the ball, and they still could not stop him. And he ran with a passion. He ran with a purpose. He was uh, the greatest running back I've ever seen in the Canadian Football League. He could do it all. He could catch the ball out of the backfield. He could block in the backfield. When he got the ball, uh, that was it. And opponents were in for a tough day when Mike Pringle was on the other side of the field. A three-time Grey Cup champion. 1995 with the Baltimore Stallions, the only U.S.-based team to win a Grey Cup. And he also won it with the Owls uh, in 2002 and then with Edmonton in 2003. So three Grey Cup rings with three different teams. That's kind of cool. That is something that doesn't normally happen. Usually when you win a bunch of Grey Cup rings, it's with one team, maybe two teams. But to do so with three different teams and with two different teams in back-to-back years is something to behold. Not sure we're going to connect with uh, Mike Pringle today. It's too bad. I really was looking forward to chatting with him about his illustrious career, his 16,425 rushing yards and um, that 2K record in 1998. Pringle, a seven-time CFL All-Star. You don't see this much nowadays either. And was also a two-time CFL Most Outstanding Player in 95 with Baltimore. And how can you not give it to him that year? He was incredible. And, of course, 1998, when he goes over 2,000 rushing yards and um, takes the league by storm. And when you think about the running back position nowadays, too, not only in the CFL but even the NFL, it has been a much reduced role. The running back is not relied upon as much as they once were. You know, gone are the days of 300 carries a season in the Canadian Football League, and to a certain extent in the NFL. We see a couple of guys, uh, Derrick Henry at you know Tennessee, uh, doing that on a annual basis. But in the CFL, not really. You know, you get up to 250, you're probably at your max. A guy like Mike Pringle would be 322, 326, 306, 311. And uh, again, you knew he was getting the ball, and you would say, all right, let's try and stop him. And more often than not, you would not be able to do that. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.